You've probably heard the line: "There's playing for a team, and there's playing for a team in New York, where the media scrutiny is so much greater and expectations are higher, etc." Well, now there's legal sports betting in this country, but will there be sports betting in Kentucky, where the racing industry is part of the culture? We'll examine that question. Plus. Could a revolutionary new medical procedure make retiring a horse due to a ligament or tendon injury a thing of the past? And what might this treatment do for humans? We'll have all that and more on this edition of In the Gate. They're in the gate. They're about to move in. They roll sack. And they're off. As they move to the top of the stretch, it's a hit-bombing finish. This is In the Gate, ESPN's Thoroughbred Racing podcast. My name is Barry Abrams. You can follow me on Twitter at B Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. You can also get us on our YouTube channel by searching In the Gate podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well. Get us at the iTunes Store or TuneIn.com. You can get us on that little pink podcatcher app on your phone you didn't even know you had. And now you can subscribe to In the Gate in the Listen tab of the ESPN app for the full In the Gate experience. Subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN. ESPN app. As you undoubtedly know, the Supreme Court paved the pathway to legalized sports betting in this country in mid-May by striking down a 1992 law which effectively banned sports betting in all but three states, most notably Nevada. Since then, legalized sports gambling operations have started up in five states, including New Jersey, the state that took the case to the Supreme Court in the first place. As of September 1st, three other states have passed bills to allow it, and operations will likely start soon. Now, Kentucky is probably the trickiest state where this issue comes up. Of course, the horse racing industry is very much part of the fabric in the Commonwealth, and there are many racing stakeholders who fear the industry being potentially crowded out by sports gambling. So. You might find it surprising that Kentucky lawmakers, who are pretty conservative as it is, have not completely dismissed the idea of legalized sports gambling. In fact, Kentucky is one of the 14 states in the country that will introduce a sports gambling bill into its legislature. Presumably, these bills will be considered in their respective states during their legislative sessions early next year. Would sports gambling be allowed in Kentucky? And if so, What ramifications would it have for the heart of the racing industry? To help us figure this out, we've reached out to Marty Finley, a reporter for Louisville Business First, and Mr. Finley is on the line with us here on In the Gate. How surprised were you that Kentucky introduced a sports wagering bill at all? Uh, it was actually a shock to a lot of us, especially in the media that's been covering uh, sort of their obstinacy to.、Uh, Casino gambling over the years. I mean, that's something that our previous go、uh, governor, Steve Bashir, had kind of campaigned on. One of his platforms, ten, twelve years ago, was that he would like to see expanded gambling be considered and, and approved in, in the state to help、uh, with some of the issues we have.、Uh, primarily, we've got a one of the worst funded pension systems, state pension systems for state workers in the entire country. It's got a shortfall of something like sixty billion dollars, and They're not really raising revenue anywhere else, so they were trying to find some new revenue sources. And、um, even back then, it was it was a problem.、Uh, it's only grown worse over time, and、um, that was one way they felt they could kind of、uh, feed some new revenue in there. But that got very staunch resistance. And then when Governor Bevin took office a few years ago, he basically said, "We have no appetite for casino gambling." So when the、um, 
the Supreme Court decision came down, I expected them to sit on it for probably several years. So the fact that they put this bipartisan panel together and are now drafting a bill that will be heard in January, there's a bit of a shock. I still don't know if it's going to pass. There's going to be some resistance to it. There's some groups, some advocacy groups that's going to fight it, but uh, it will be heard and it would at least be uh, debated this, this upcoming uh, session. Interestingly, casino gaming is outlawed in Kentucky, which has seen its tracks suffer, while those in neighboring states like Indiana can combine racing and gaming in one operation. So why would Kentucky now consider sports gambling when they've outlawed casino gambling? Yeah, that's a question that's still kind of looming out there. Uh, Like I said, the panel is bipartisan, so you've got Democrats and Republicans from both houses that are working on this. But some of the people that have now kind of wavered and are supporting, or at least appear to be supporting the sports gambling bill, have been opponents of the uh, casino gambling. In the in the case of the governor, he's not said he would support it. He's basically just said he wouldn't veto it immediately, that he would read the bill, digest it, and then decide what he would do should it pass the two houses. I still think it's got an uphill battle, but that is a question that we don't have a lot of certainty on is what's the difference and why do they feel that this varies significantly from casinos. The big argument with against casinos in the past has sort of been the morality issue of it is that you're enabling bad habits or uh, targeting the poor that they'll go into these casinos and spend all their money and their life savings, and then they'll be broke and destitute. And they don't want to sort of enable that behavior. But you're seeing states, like you said, we're just a few miles here in Louisville from uh, a uh, casino. So uh, they're seeing those kind of benefits and Kentucky's been missing out on that revenue, uh, as supporters would say, for for decades now. And, of course, Churchill Downs has been kind of silently pushing for this. They've backed off a little bit in recent years, but they have been advocating for casino gambling in Kentucky for years. But we have not gotten a good um, explanation of what the supporters of sports gambling, how they differentiate that from casinos. And that may come up more in in the session. I mean, you mentioned Churchill Downs, and they've been focusing their business efforts on gaming more so than racing lately, you know, to the satisfaction of its shareholders, if not to many race fans. How much did Churchill's influence have on Kentucky introducing the sports gaming bill? I think it definitely helped. I mean, they immediately jumped out and announced a partnership, a national partnership with a company called SB Tech. They're going to build out the platform for their online sports books as well as iGaming, some of the uh, online poker casino-type gaming that they are starting to look at in Pennsylvania and and New Jersey and then also um, Mississippi and the actual casinos. So they're they're doing a mixture of online and brick-and-mortar uh, sports books. But they come out within within a week and said, we've got this partnership, we're ready to go. We're looking to uh, establish in three in three states right out the gate. I imagine that did put a little bit of pressure on on the state to at least look at it and then give it some thought, but I don't know how much of that was influenced by Churchill Downs, and ultimately we'll see how much influence they have in come January if they can kind of sway some of the, the legislators, specifically in, in parts of the, the state where maybe Churchill Downs doesn't have as much influence in the in the far east of the state specifically. So uh, it remains to be seen. They just opened their new uh, instant racing facility here. Um, they built that over on Poplar Level Road on their own sports spectrum operations. I actually toured that yesterday, but that is another thing that they're they're bringing in to, to bring in some increased revenues, particularly for the Kentucky horse racing industry to boost purses for some of the different races. So 
they're taking a couple different uh, tacks to, uh, like you said, expand their gaming presence, both in Kentucky and nationally. You mentioned online, and we'll get to that Pandora's box in a minute, but at a recent sports wagering symposium, Kentucky's state Senate Majority Leader Damon Thayer, who has always looked out for racing interests, said that he expects racetracks to offer sports gambling with a percentage of revenues supporting Kentucky racing and breeding. How realistic is that arrangement, do you think? Yeah, and it remains to be seen. Yeah, as you said, Damon has been very supportive of horse racing and their interest in the past. You're hearing some other legislators saying that maybe some of the money would be funneled toward uh, infrastructure education. I'm sure there'd be some people pitching, put some toward the sort of the pension. So it remains to be seen. The numbers we're hearing right now, if the state does legalize this, is what you would be seeing in taxes, the actual tax revenue that would be coming into the state would be filtered toward it's anywhere from five to thirty million. So that's a pretty big gap. If Churchill Downs is doing a lot of the, the sports books, I imagine some of that would be invested back into the horse racing industry. I don't know how much of that or what percentage it would be, but I don't know how much, if any, of the tax revenue would be reinvested by the state into the industry. It would probably have to come through some of the private companies or Churchill Downs, which of course is publicly traded. So that's more of a wait and see thing, but I imagine Churchill would want to reinvest in its own facilities, but also the industry as a whole. Marty Finley of Louisville Business First joins us here on In the Gate. What do Kentucky horsemen and track operators, other than Churchill, which we've mentioned, think of this sports mm-hmm. gambling potentially being legalized in the state? You know, I'm hearing mostly positives. I'm not. I'm not really hearing anything negative. Of course, right now Churchill Downs and Keeneland have been working together. They're looking to build a couple of tracks um, in other parts of the state that they would co-own and as a joint venture. Uh, they're also going to be doing some harness racing, or at least try to. They've made a pitch to the Horse Racing Commission to uh, relaunch harness racing here in uh, Louisville uh, for a limited time. So they're working together on some on some different things to help the industry. But from what I'm hearing within the horse racing industry, it's largely positive. They feel that they can pretty s- smoothly um, work this into their existing paramutual wagering. Uh, the question I'm hearing, in, in both locally and nationally, is what impact some of the leagues would have with their integrity fees. Of course, that would be something that the state would have to look at if they would institute a certain percentage to go to the leagues that are being bet on. And then also the, some of the tax rates. I know the um, Churchill Downs has actually said we are a little concerned if the rate is extremely high. I think in Pennsylvania they were saying the tax rate could be as much as 34%. So they don't want to be basically taxed out of market. So that would be another thing that you really have to look at in Kentucky is what that tax rate would be on the on the betting. So that's a couple of things that they're looking at both nationally and Churchill Downs, but I think some of these others, Keeneland included, will be looking at closely. They want it here, but the tax rate to be so burdensome that it's, they, they don't feel like it's something they can actually do and make money off of. Do you think these people are aware of the trend over the last 25, 30 years of these casino interests, in this case sports gambling interests, using racetracks as an entree to open brick-and-mortar gaming operations, and then after a few successful years saying, why are we keeping this racing thing afloat? I mean, possibly that's something that we've heard with from casino opponents. Is you know, I've, I've heard a few people say that it could hurt the horse racing industry. I don't know. That's something I'm not really an expert on. And, and here locally, if that would uh, kind of usurp the uh, the impact of horse racing, of course, even though with Churchill Downs, they definitely want to protect the industry. 
but there could be outside interest, as you said, that could that could come in and attempt to, I guess, uh, bump that or try to overtake it in some in some respects. Now, you talked about online, and Churchill Downs has an established advanced deposit wagering platform where you can bet races, twinspires.com. Presumably, it wouldn't be that hard to add sports gambling there, which would guarantee Churchill revenue, even when gambling is allowed in more than just brick-and-mortar locations. What about the other tracks in the state? Keeneland, Ellis Park, Turfway, Kentucky Downs, which just concluded. How ready are these places to handle online sports gaming or even online thoroughbred wagering for that matter? Yeah, that's a good question. Churchill, I think, is more positioned better than those because they have that experience through Twin Spires. I know what we've heard is that Churchill is probably better geared than most companies on a nationwide level to quickly turn that around. Of course, with Churchill, they would have a different platform than Twin Spires, but the other tracks, I think they have a little bit of catching up to do from where Churchill is simply because they don't have that platform and they don't have that experience. So that that will be remain to be seen as if they'll have to build their own platform or if they'll be able to do a similar partnership that Churchill Down has done and have someone come in and basically do the actual online platform functions for them, the back office and support stuff. But I do think that they definitely have a leg up on most companies because of the Twin Spires experience they've built over the last several years. So bottom line, I mean, how do you think this all plays out with the potential for sports gambling in Kentucky and how it impacts racing? I don't. I mean, if I was having being asked, you know, to bet on it, I would say that I I don't see it passing in this upcoming session. I think there'll be a lot of discussion, but I think it will probably be defeated now. And I do think there'll be more sport build. I do think we'll see it, but I don't see Kentucky uh, making that kind of 180 this quickly and passing this. If they do, it will be heavily contested. But as far as racing, I do think we'll see some immediate benefits long term. I don't know what that would mean for them to coexist with horse racing be, being so intertwined in the state. There could be some competition and some problems there in the future. But I, I said if it's passed, I think short term, you'll see some benefits. But long term, that that's still a bit of a question. But in the immediate short term with them uh, still working on the bill, I do see that probably being defeated at least this year, but it will return and eventually I think it will gain passage. It is tough to put the genie back in the bottle. Very interesting situation to be played out. Marty Finley, thank you so much for your insight here. This is a story that's not going away anytime soon. Thank you. We're going to take a short break here on In the Gate, but when we come back, a potentially revolutionary way to keep horses and potentially humans healthy after injuring tendons or ligaments. So don't go anywhere. This could be big. Welcome back to the In the Gate podcast. I'll have another. Azeri, Damascus, now even Saxon warrior. All of these horses and so many others had to retire due to tendon injuries. Tendons attach muscle to bone. In the case of I'll Have Another, of course, his tendon injury came the day before a potential run for the Triple Crown in the 2012 Belmont Stakes. Now, a researcher in Nottingham, England, along with colleagues in Russia, may have developed a procedure to heal a horse's tendon or ligament injuries in just a matter of weeks, with no scar tissue left behind. In fact, this breakthrough may be so significant, it might be able to help human tendon or ligament injuries just as much as those of the equine variety. 
For all these reasons, we think this is a topic worth exploring on the show. So to do that, we welcome to win the gate Dr. Catherine Rutland of the University of Nottingham in the UK. Thank you so much for a few minutes, doctor. Now, I am not a doctor, nor do I play one on TV. So in layman's terms, explain how this procedure works. So what Professor Ovisinoff and his team have done is they've taken genes, which are horse-specific genes in this case, and they've been able to inject them into an area of injury. So in this case, it's some injuries in horses, and they've got complicated names, the superficial digital flexor tendon and the suspensory ligament branch. But effectively, injuries to those areas cause lameness in horses. So what then happens is the um, genes create proteins which heal the areas of the um, tendon or the ligament. So not only do you get a quick recovery of those tissues, but also you don't get any scar tissue, which is fantastic because it means that the area is less likely to become re-injured later on. So it's using genetic therapy, which is a very advanced technique, very new technique, to help these injuries in order to get, in this case, these horses back on track, back to trotting, running, galloping again. Now, it seems that you determine that the reason these ligaments and tendons don't heal as well as we wish they would is because they don't get enough blood flow. So how does your procedure affect that? Blood flow is really important for an area to heal. The blood helps the nutrients and the oxygen get to the injured tissue and actually helps it to restore again. So one of the ideal situations would be if we can increase the blood flow to that area, we can increase the healing time. And what we've looked at using a technique called Doppler imaging is that we've been able to see that these two genes actually help to create new blood vessels in the area of injury, which therefore helps the area to get nutrition, helps the area to get oxygen, and therefore encourages healing. And the interesting thing was, after the plasmid with the genes was injected into the area, we saw an increase in blood vessels. And as the area became healed, those blood vessels were not needed anymore because the normal blood vessels could work. And so there was again a, then a decrease in blood vessels, which was very promising to see. Wow, I didn't realize that blood vessels could come and go like that. I figured once they're there, they're there. Actually, it's interesting because it happens all the time very naturally in the human body and in most animals. So as we develop, we grow these blood vessels to support our tissue. And then at other times, important times in life, blood vessels appear. For example, when a woman is pregnant, she has to create extra blood vessels and the placenta has to grow extra blood vessels in order to feed the baby. So it's a very normal activity that if, for example, you get injured, you may want the body may want to try to fix the area by growing new blood vessels. So in a way, this technique is sort of mimicking or enhancing what the body would try to do naturally, but it's giving it a bit of an extra boost, if you like. Now, you touched on this a moment ago, saying that gene therapy stimulates the necessary repairs to the tendon or ligament. What exactly is gene therapy in this case, and exactly what role does it play? So gene therapy is a new and emerging therapy where we take genes that naturally occur in the body and have 
normal, natural functions. And we put them into the area where they're most needed. So it's something that the body would already be trying to do, but we sort of enhance the amount and put it exactly in the right area. So, for example, um, we've used two genes, BGF and FGF2, and those genes are normally responsible for helping to create new cells, create new blood vessels. And so what we're doing is we're giving the body an extra boost by putting those genes in to help those functions. Now, none of the horses you used in your study were thoroughbreds. They were different breeds, including a Russian saddle horse, a Dutch warm blood, and an Andalusian. Now, what differences, if any, did you notice between the breeds in terms of their anatomy, what the horses are used for, and therefore what kinds of different injuries they suffered, their ability to heal using the procedure, etc.? So normally, in order to actually look at the differences between, say, the different breeds, we'd need a fair number of different breeds to be able to make a conclusion about that. We did see differences between the different horses in the recovery rate, but also they had slightly different injuries from each other. So, for example, some had bigger tears to the tendon. So we can't really yet draw any conclusions about the differences between the different breeds in, for example, how quickly they mend. In order to do that, we'd have to have lots of the same breed and they'd have to have exactly the same injury, if that makes sense. But what was encouraging was that although we used all of these different types of horses, that most of them responded very well to the therapy, of course, which is fantastic because it means that whether they might be racing horses or dressage horses or horses that are for pleasure riding, Um, they can all potentially benefit from this gene therapy. We're talking here on In the Gate with Dr. Katrin Rutland of the University of Nottingham. What is the nature of this so-called plasmid DNA drug that was used to treat these horses? Is this a drug that's available to horsemen? Tell me about this. So this drug, this new gene therapy, is completely novel. It's the first time it's been used in horses, and it was developed by Professor Albert Rizvanoff at Kazan Federal University. So this really is a novel research paper that shows how it works. So, so far, it's not actually available in the veterinary clinics. Naturally, all new treatments have to be checked and tested to make sure they work. However, one of our aims is that eventually one day we'll be able to get this treatment out into clinics and, of course, um, train clinicians in how to use gene therapy, because it's such a new technique. So what does this drug actually do? So effectively, it is two genes that are in a plasmid, and these genes make proteins that help not only to build up the tissue, the broken tissue, the injured tissue, but also encourages blood vessels to grow in the area. These blood vessels help the area to get oxygen and food nutrients to the area, so that it can be restored quickly. So it's mimicking the natural body's response, but in a very technologically advanced way, thus helping the injured area to heal quickly. Now, you write that the horses maintained a low level of exercise activity, then a warm-up walk, a trot, and then increase in intensity. 
How successful was this process? I believe I read that not all the horses responded well to the treatment. So, how successful was the process? So, the、um, gene therapy was put together with a very carefully planned program of exercise. So, all the horses were monitored all of the time to make sure that the injuries were healing well and that we weren't pushing them too quickly with the exercise regime. Any horse owner will know that the exercise regime is absolutely vital. Now, as it happened, one of the horses on the trial out of the ten actually got an injury on a completely different limb, and that meant, of course, that we were unable to really continue、um, with the trial because we couldn't say that the horse wasn't lame because it was also lame on another leg, and that was a completely different injury. Another of the horses improved a little. But not back to full fitness as before. So we also considered that this was not full healing. So we also reported that this horse was not really able to heal. But the other eight horses were very successful, and indeed many of them are now、um, back to competition level at the owner's choice. And given that they were fully、um, healthy and back to fitness. Now this was one study. I mean, if this process is ever to be implemented regularly, how many more comparable studies need to be done? What else needs to be done? This is, of course, is one of the big questions, and it's one of our. You know, what do we do next? Most definitely, it's a very, very promising study, but it is only ten horses. So what we need to do next is we need to start looking in more horses. We need to take it out、um, into the clinics. And it's very difficult to tell whether a treatment works or works comparatively to another treatment until, of course, many horses have gone through. There are arguments as to how big that number is, but of course, as you sort of creep up into the hundreds or thousands, then you can start comparing it to data that we've already got from the present regimes and the present treatments. So it's going to take a while until we're fully aware of exactly.、Um, How many horses can heal? How quickly they heal? The different types of injuries and how they heal. So it will be a while yet. Now, healing horses and getting them back into competition is a wonderful and noble goal. But if this process really works on horses, what possibility is there that it could do the same for human tendon and ligament injuries? This is something we're very excited about. So, for this study, the genes were horse specific. However, We could do the same for humans, and so this is a very, very promising area that we're expanding into. Also, humans, dogs, and other animals, and it's not just tendons and ligaments that we are interested in. This type of therapy, these techniques, could potentially work in other areas of human and animal medicine. The therapies are being used, different ones, in humans so far. Again, under. Sort of clinical control data, but this could be revolutionary in the way that we treat humans and other animals. So it's very exciting. We can rebuild him. We're getting closer to the days of the bionic athletes with this process well underway. Well, thank you so much for sharing this with us,、uh, Dr. Rutland. This is very, very promising. Thank you very much, and it's been a pleasure speaking to you. Our thanks to Dr. Katrin Rutland and Marty Finley. 
I don't bet very often, so I'd never heard of the practice of breakage, which doesn't mean you break, you buy. It means that when there's the payout of a bet, it's rounded down to the nearest dime, and it's hard to believe just why. The breakage practice was designed to keep the betting windows moving without the need to fumble for small change. These days, that's less of an issue since so much betting's electronic. But even years back, the practice still seemed rather strange. For one better, the difference of a few cents isn't much. But multiply that over the length of a year, and the tracks are walking away with a lot of the betters' well-earned money. And the more this comes to light, the bigger fear is that coupling breakage with a higher takeout rate than other gambling makes betting racing a less enticing play. Yet one more reason that in the absence of a commissioner of racing, this sport cannot get out of its own way. You can get us on our YouTube channel by searching "In the Gate Podcast." You can get us on SoundCloud as well. Get us on the iTunes Store or TuneIn.com. You can get us on that little pink podcatcher app on your phone you didn't even know you had. And now you can subscribe to "In the Gate" in the Listen tab of the ESPN app for the full "In the Gate" experience. Subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app, and you can follow me on Twitter at B Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. That's "In the Gate" for this week. I'm Barry Abrams. We'll see you next time.